keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, we go to the heart of the Chumash Nation in Santa Barbara, California, in protecting public spaces and public murals. We'll have an in-depth conversation on the Otega Park Restoration Project and the desecration of murals and cultural sacred sites. And then to Chiapas and Jalisco, Mexico, as the Mexican government ramps up tensions in denying indigenous people's rights to education and the theft of more indigenous lands. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of today's program, we go to the heart of the Chumash Nation in Santa Barbara, California, where the city council is proposing to spend millions of dollars in revising the Ortega Park in downtown Santa Barbara. The park has a long history of local and regional cultural artists producing murals. Renovation of the park would result in the destruction of these murals as well as other cultural public spaces. In this first segment, Marcus Lopez interviews Mark Moses Alvarado, founder of the One Community Bridge Project, a culturally specific nonprofit organization based in the city of Santa Barbara, which is leading the Ortega Park Rescue Project in attempts to preserve culturally public spaces and the murals at Otega Park in Santa Barbara, California. We're speaking with Mark Moses Alvarado, who is the founder of One Community Bridge Project. And the One Community Bridge Projects has a um, support for their Otega Park Mural Rescue Project. Thank you for joining us, Mark, on the American Indian Airways. Now talk about um, the organization for a while. What is One Community Pro uh, Bridge Project? Well, we're a, a culturally specific organization, meaning that we specifically serve people of color. Uh, we specifically focus on Santa Barbara's east side and west side. Um, we have an agreement with Santa Barbara Unified School District to um, bring the cultural and performing arts at a community-based level Cleveland Elementary, Franklin Elementary, McKinley, and uh, Harding, along with Santa Barbara Junior High and, Santa, and Lacumba Junior High. So we provide a variety of cultural arts programming from music, dance, teatro, spoken word, the visual arts, and we try to use those platforms to improve uh, academic achievement for our children, as well as uh, improve their social well-being. Um, identify cultural hubs within these neighborhoods um, so that the identity of our working families and their children are, are bridged with the greater Santa Barbara arts infrastructure. Santa Barbara is well known as, as being this 
uh, for the arts, um, the Bowl, the Granada, the Arlington Music of the West. But what is the access that our families and children have to those venues, right? And so we're trying to bridge those gaps. We are sponsored by the Santa Barbara Foundation, the Santa Barbara Bowl Foundation, our primary support systems right now. And um, we are starting to kick off a summer engagement program at Franklin Elementary and Santa Barbara Junior High, uh, infusing the music component. Now you talk about the One Community Bridge Project is dedicated to development of a community arts hub through a revised plan for the park. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, one of the reasons why the park has garnered so much negative attention over the years is because it's been neglected. There hasn't been any services or programs out of the um, welcome house there that is ideal to create vibrant activities for the neighborhood and for our youth. And so we see that dormancy as an opportunity to do a lot of the programming that I just described within the organization, as well as partner with other community organizations around activism, social activism, cultural activism, in order to bring more uh, activities, vibrancy, and a positive identity to the park. As you very well know yourself growing up in the park, that there's a lot to do in that park. You just gotta you just gotta create the time and space to make it happen. And so that's that's really what we talk about converting or reestablishing, reclaiming space around a cultural arts hub, a cultural community hub there and Ortega Park. Now you talk about your organization, just to let the listeners know about you you are going through the door-to-door bilingual neighborhood outreach in this effort. Talk about that. Are you being successful in that? How are you doing that? Well, thankfully, through a grant that we received from the Fund for Santa Barbara, we were able to work with Benestad Latinx and their leadership team to recruit community members as well as students at Santa Barbara Junior High and Santa Barbara High School to go door-to-door in and around the neighborhood and the businesses to make people aware of what was going on in Ortega Park with the redevelopment and with the potential destruction of the murals. So we did that for about two weeks prior to the April 24th event, and we were successful. We garnered over a thousand signatures and a petition to save the murals, right? We had 150 people come into the park that day for that event. Now, granted, we didn't get the amount of bilingual speakers or monolingual Spanish speakers in the park, for some reason or another, and and um, that can be discussed. But I think the the fact that we weren't successful in getting monolingual Spanish speakers into the park for the murals is because they they don't have a connection. They don't have the Chicano connection that you and I have growing up here. A lot of our families are relatively new. They're young families. The last twenty years, they don't have that capacity, and and so there's an opportunity there to to educate and to build capacity around the cultural arts for our families. And that sits within the mission of the One Community Bridge Project. And lastly, talk about the organization, the One Community Bridge Project that we're talking with the founder, Mark Moses Alvarado. Talk about this portion that reflects and possibly can talk about the story of our community, filming of a documentary highlighting the community's efforts to rescue the Ortega Park murals. How is that going? Well, that's been a very successful effort. Once again, thank you to the Fund for Santa Barbara for supporting that effort. Um, Really, what we're doing with the documentary is telling the story. 
we're telling the story once we found out that the that the murals were um, on the chopping block. And within telling that story, we we have documentation from all the public meetings. I want to recognize Ignacio Moreno, our director and producer, along with um, Alejandro Cortez from Benestar Latinx, who took up this project for us. Um, so as they've been tracking all of the public meetings, interviewing people, getting footage, doing their research, we've been really successful in, in being able to put together um, some clips that have been circulated controversially around the community because not everybody agrees with what we're doing, you know, but that's okay. We're, this is to tell this is to tell the truth to the greatest extent possible through the documentary. But we are we are we're we're doing the best we can to bring that because nobody else nobody else is trying to tell the story. But we feel we we have an obligation. Well, that was a good segue, a mark to our city council meeting last Tuesday, and that was a regular city council meeting. And the outcome of the meeting was that the city council supports the formation of a committee to create a plan for a take apart murals. Now, according to different sources, you know, of, um, of different articles that came out with Independent and with News Hawk and whatnot. Tell us about what went on from your point of view. I think more than anything, it was a recap. Uh, Jill Zachary spent a good amount of time recapping uh, and, and giving the city's narrative of how things have gone from, from the inception of 2018 when they started this planning process. So, but the outcome was, was, was nothing new to us because we have been advocating to form a committee from the very beginning. So it took um, council member Eric Friedman to bring that up as a motion and then acknowledging that Alejandro Gutierrez had said that since December. So, um, so that outcome is good because it's gonna live now with the Arts Advisory Committee who is going to enlist local experts to come up with the final determination of the outcome of the murals. As you very well know, Manuel Unzueta's pieces that are around the bathroom are considered historic by the evaluation that the city had contracted out to do by site and studio conservators from Los Angeles who came in and did a report on the murals. And we feel that all the murals are historic to a certain degree. Once again, they belong to a cluster of murals from throughout the Southwest, from San Diego to Los Angeles, even here in Guadalupe, in Northern County, San Francisco, Oakland, you know, Fresno, Phoenix, El Paso, Albuquerque. You know, this is this is a family. This is a family of artwork, you know, and it's all related. Como los missions. You know, you touch one, you touch them all. And that's really and that's really the foundation of, 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 of our effort. And not everybody agrees with that point of view. Our, the murals are not wallpaper. These aren't things that you just take up and take down. And they belong to the community, despite the fact that the artists are the ones who did the pieces. Once they go up on a public wall, they belong to the community. There's laws, there's state and federal laws that state that. So we are only just trying to follow, one, the letter of the law, and as well the spirit of the relationship that these murals have within the Chicano and indigenous communities throughout the Southwest. Thank you, Mark. Uh, the uh, One Community Bridge Project, it seems to be the organization that try to pull everybody together and all these different groups are jockeying for positions to say for the monies, if I can say that. The city council meeting, I couldn't stay for all of it, but what I did stay, uh, I did stay for was some of the councilman's comments and also the, the director, um, 
comments as far as the um, proposal. Now you you were raised in uh, in Santa Barbara, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And you've seen the ebbs and flows within Santa Barbara East Side and the community and West Side as you as, as you um, raise your family and whatnot within Santa Barbara. But Chet, when Mike Jordan, Councilman Mike Jordan, said that I can't tell who's who wants what. If I were a parent of a small children in this neighborhood, I would be furious. Now, you being a grown man, family, respected family member out there in the community, I take it personally as offensive. Why does he understand it? And number two, I don't really, is it a, some form of privilege that he talks about the community in this way? Talk about that for us. Well, it's definitely a narrative that is white-centered. It's definitely a narrative of privilege. He he opens up his statement by saying that he's kind of like the the he's the, the most uneducated when it comes to these issues. So he, he acknowledges his ignorance on the top. And then he forwards other issues that the process was hijacked and that um if I, like you said, if I was a parent in the neighborhood, I'd be furious. That just that just goes to show that the the whole drive behind that is about money you know there's there's the capitalist point of view that when some of the commissioners park commissioners spoke spoke and talked about how in jeopardy of the money 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 you know and and look where money has gotten us people of color over the last 500 years If if it wasn't god then it was gold right and if it wasn't god and gold it was greed you know so all these things are still elements today from manifest destiny and colonialism these are all in, in embedded in their brains it's in their dna like like trauma is in our dna the trauma that our ancestors have suffered so when someone speaks like that they do trigger they do trigger these emotions out of us but we know we haven't done anything wrong other than disrupt what they were going to do without if we didn't say anything on november 12 2020 all of this wouldn't be would be a mute issue the murals would already would already be approved for the destruction but then we'd have to really work backwards so thank god the community did come together and not just one community bridge but a lot of organizations have come together healing justice chumash community the jewish community schools a lot of people have come together around this issue so this was been a very very poignant time in the history of santa barbara to reclaim the spirit of who we are as people of color and it's just the right thing for us to do at this time we and you know what and we have a lot of allies we have a lot of angles that feel what we're going through and they support us you know i don't i don't buy into these narratives when they come out that way because i just know that they're built around capitalism and you're listening to american indian airwaves with marcus lopez interviewing mark moses alvarado founder of the one community bridge project based out of santa barbara california It is leading the Ortega Park Rescue Project. The Santa Barbara City Council is proposing to renovate the Ortega Park, which could result in the destruction of public art and murals, as well as cultural public spaces. And now back to the interview. I thought that the article by Josh Molina of the Newshawk in Santa Barbara, I haven't read the independent Santa Barbara Independent, uh, but many of the Santa Barbara Independent just takes pieces of their own reflection, their own particular view. And that is the argument that goes about pitting one portion of the community against other portions of the community. 
Before I get there, though, and I apologize, but that the parks director, Jill Zachary, had a lot of time within the city council meeting. And she not only was reported, but stating that the reproductions, the, the, the overall monies that talked about, which is a surprise to many people, not only the award of $8.6 million grant, but the overall cost of renovating the park is estimated at 15 million. Now there's a big gap. And she presented her report, but I think one of the things that even the statement by one of the people that phoned in, Michael Inman from the Associate Executive Director of the Cultural Resources Santa Barbara Transfer Historic Preservation to talk about certain things. And we'll play that little clip. Speaker is Michael Imwale. Imwale. Michael Imwale, please go ahead. Good evening, Mayor and Council. My name is Michael Imwale, Associate Executive Director for Cultural Resources for the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation. SBTHP is supportive of preserving as many of the historic murals in Ortega Park as possible. We also support opportunities for new murals to tell the diverse stories that make up the East Side community. This project presents presents a unique opportunity to honor the Chumash that came before us. The contaminated soil that many have spoken about in the southeast portion of the park represents the former estuary or estero. The uncontaminated soil in the northwest corner of the park represents the shoreline of the former estero. For millennia, the Chumash collected shellfish from its sandy bottoms, fished for shovel-nosed guitar fish, skates and rays in its waters and hunted for waterfowl along its shores. The Chumash lived on the shores of the Estero. Ortega Park is an intersection of the Estero and the shore of the Estero. The Chumash were the first inhabitants of the east side. The entire park falls within the archaeological sensitive area for prehistoric cultural resources in the city's master environmental assessment. Was a phase one archaeological study completed for the sequel evaluation for this project? Were the Chumash consulted? Please consult the Chumash community and compel and help them to compel this story. This project presents a wonderful opportunity for the city parks and recreation department to inform the public about the natural history, prehistory, historic land use, and historic preservation in Santa Barbara. SBTHP supports the designation of Ortega Park as a cultural park, a multicultural park. Thank you. And that was a clip from Michael and Wally. Then that he talks Mark, about preserving murals, honoring the Chumash, the southeast section of the park, northwest section of the park, and about the Esseras. The, the swamp areas, that's another name for it, and also the uh, first inhabitants of the Chumash. And then the, this is a whole sensitive area, archaeological sensitive area. The city needed to consult not only a good sequel report, which was astounding that they didn't put their ducks in order at the Parks and Recreation, not only within that particular scene, but also with the issue of the total community and that the they need to consult with the Chumash community. But within that framework, what did you think about the parks director, Jill Zachary, besides these comments that we heard as far as discussing archeological sequel, environmental 
report, so on and so forth, about my uh, Michael Inman talked about. Overall, I sat through her delivery, her narrative. Well, what did you think about it? His, the, the pronunciation of his last name is Imwali. Imwali. Michael Imwali from the Trust for Historic Preservation, who is a member of the Ortega Park Mill Rescue Project. I really feel that her narrative it was kind of a forced narrative because, once again, if we didn't bring up the murals are just the tip of the iceberg. If we didn't bring up the murals, we wouldn't be discussing archaeological sensitivity. We wouldn't be discussing what's underneath the park. The, 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 we wouldn't be discussing the, the water table, the aquifer that's under the park. We wouldn't be discussing these things. So it's kind of a forced narrative on her, on her part to try to either avoid these sensitive issues or try to meet them head on. And the only thing that she said that had any substance is when she acknowledged that the park should be some kind of cultural landmark. Okay. But with that opening right there, that fits to what Michael and Wally said about the sensitivity of the parks area of the park where the ocean actually met the Estelle and where the early inhabitants, Chumash inhabitants, where they billaged and where they fished and where they trapped. And could you imagine if we were able to reclaim that space and do some type of homage to that and recreate that environment, recreate that natural environment for, for everybody to enjoy? That would be a beautiful thing. What Michael said in his comments were emotional. They were emotional because he went to the marrow of the issue. Like I said, that murals are just the iceberg the tip of the iceberg, what Michael and Wally said is the reclamation of, of our land, of our space, has been taken away from us. And if we were able to get a hold of that and, and forward his vision, that would be a beautiful thing. We're speaking with Mark Moses Alvarado, the founder of One Community Bridge Project. And the topic of today's conversation is the Santa Barbara City Council formation of a committee to create a plan for Ortega Park murals. Mark, one of the things that came up was this question of Councilwoman Megan Harmon talks about no buy-in from the community. What do you think that means to her? And then in turn, what does it mean to you? Well, for full disclosure, I met with Megan Harmon before the meeting. And she came to me and she wanted to know my point of view of things so that she could make the best educated decision. So when she said that there's no community buy-in, she's saying that the current design and the master plan is not fully supported by the entire community. And even though the city pushes back and says, well, in 2018, we did the outreach and residents in and around the park said this is what they wanted, but the murals were never discussed. And I brought that up time and time again. I've been challenged. And somebody told me, well, yeah, the murals were brought up in 2018. Yeah, that was me and Gerardo Menchaca brought that up at Santa Barbara Junior High in June of 2018. And we were told, oh, we'll talk about that later. And later was November 12, 2020, two, over two years later. Albeit there was um, COVID that didn't allow the city to do their outreach, but they knew about the $8.5 million grant in the summer. They knew that they needed the community's buy-in, but instead of doing it the right way, they tried to play a shell game or a poker game with us and we called them out on it. And thank God that we had the experts like uh, Celia Herrera Rodriguez, like a Holly Barnett Sanchez, like a Josie Talamantes from Chicano Park, like Tim Drescher 
from Oakland, the number one mural preservationist in the United States, came to the table with us. And you yourself introduced them when we had the forum back in February. So when you have that level of expertise, along with Michael and Wally, come on. <laughs> what more do you want? That is like the that is like the primo blue ribbon committee that you could put together to tell you about the significance of this artwork. But they didn't want to touch it. They wanted to go on and play a game with us. And here we are. Now that grant, today's the day that everything is due. And Joe Zachary admitted that they, they don't they're not prepared to submit what the state requires. Do you think the state's gonna give them a pass? You know, they, these are serious questions that weren't really addressed. So out of that meeting, that was one thing that I came away from was like, there wasn't a definitive question to ask, do you think we're gonna get funded? And, and the response was, well, I don't know, we'll see. Come on, give me a break. This is this is government. This isn't, this isn't uh, you know, passing out cookies. Thank you, Mark. The parks director, Joe Zachary, spent 30 some odd minutes making a presentation. And she mentioned a lot of groups that she thanked and were part of the process. She didn't even recognize the one community bridge project, you know, like it was a, some out there, some invisible force. But yet we're speaking to yourself was the founder of the one community bridge project. But one of the things in ending this conversation and was just not ending the topic of what's good for the community is that what do you foresee of the Santa Barbara City Council formation of a committee? What do you want them to do? Well, first and foremost, I'd like to see them pull together the strongest group of individuals, experts, artists, preservationists. We have enough local people here to pull together the best group possible that includes the artists from the SOPAC group, includes Manuel Unsuelta, includes other artists, Okay, that's that, and, and there was a concern that because we had stacked ourselves with so many experts from out of town that we were trying that maybe the hijacking of the process. Those folks don't need to be at at this table. We have enough local people that can do this work. Okay, so first and foremost, I want to see a sample of all the different interested parties come together under one banner to preserve the murals to the greatest extent possible. Mark Alvarado does not need to be at that table. Mark Alvarado did what he needed to do by creating awareness and doing the outreach and getting us this far. I'm big enough to hand off to the experts because I'm not a racialist expert. Now I have a background in Chicano studies and humanities and diversity and community development and all those things, but this is a specialized thing. And so that's what I would like to see. And whatever comes out of it, so be it. We have to live with it. We have to move on. We can't get stuck on stupid. We have to move on. But I know that there's enough smart people in this town that want to see the work saved to the greatest extent possible, moving them, creating memorials, creating space, reclaiming space within the park. And Jill Zachary said it herself. Anything we do alters the design. Well, they should have thought about that first before they tried to go before the planning commission without doing the sequel on the mural. Thank you, Mark. Um, last comments. I'll ask, ask you a question on, I want to give kudos to Councilwoman Alejandra Guterres, who been leading the efforts about trying to get the people together. And she stated that uh, I've been trying to do this, to do is bring everybody to the table and that this is what I've been doing, I'm quoting, and it almost seems like my efforts have not been valued, Guterres said. Now, do you think that some sense of 
prejudice is going on with the city council and not listening to her and and like she said her dad he wasn't was involved with murals about just because she's in the east side and she has that spanish surname that people just just put her to the side or um i thought that her remarks were interesting when she said it because of the fact that a lot of people in the city council other council individuals waited until this had to happen rather than since december do you see some type of rift going on city council share some of your thoughts within that you have to look at the dynamics here you have a young person of color under the new district formation of, of city council representation very strong will not worried about getting reelected just wanting what's best for the community and then you have a government that's white centered who doesn't always see the opportunity because the dollars that are dangling right $600,000 investment thus far 8.5 million dollars on the table 15 million dollar project amenities all these things right and that's where the people the values are at right that's where this government values are at and she's like i don't care what the values are what the community says and what the community wants that's my value that's the riff so she comes in and saying let's bring everybody together and they're like well that what's what good is that going to do well yeah it's going to change the game so it's taken six months to do it hook or crook to get this far right and it's and it's upset a lot of people that that are that are centered around the government that don't get it say things disparaging things try to discredit us that we hijack the process these kind of, kind of comments that they make but it's okay they can say whatever they want to say it's been it's been over 500 years we've been dealing with this for since millennial but we're not we're, we're not scared we have nothing to be afraid of we have to go forward we're gonna we're gonna do this to the greatest extent possible and the last thing i want to leave you with all of this is that the students and the children are watching us. They're watching us. They're watching if we're going to back down and if we're going to bow again. Finally, man, we can't do that anymore. We are in our right to stand up and say what we feel is best for the community. Albeit, like I said, they started a process in 2018, but you didn't do it good enough. Sorry. And we're here, okay? And that's it. And let's try to work together. And that's why I'm hoping this group that comes together will be able to come up with the best solution possible. And what it is is what it is because we do need to move on. Yeah, and that was American Indian Airwaves executive producer Marcus Lopez speaking with Mark Moses Alvarado, founder of the One Community Bridge Project, a culturally specific nonprofit organization based out of the city of Santa Barbara, California. It is leading the Ortega Park Rescue Project where the city of Santa Barbara is planning to spend millions of dollars in renovating the Ortega Park, which could result in the destruction of public art, murals, as well as other culturally significant spaces. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. It's systemic, it's racism, it's algorithm, it's plagiarism of a system that never worked for us as we sit back and watch the dust collapse. But find yourself that deep spirit is all connected Perhaps our heart will melt when we cross paths Mirror reflection You and I on these front lines Never imagine these soul ties Of standing together in this sunshine You and I with our one sign That said BLM and I can't breathe As you screamed out, we can't see Rubber bullets and getting tear gas. How long will these tears last? Even though hundreds of years pass Gets genocidal real fast I'm fine right where I am 
day meeting yourself fear Depression I felt for years Tear gas and these trails of tears One man can change the world And we leave this world and we all meet One man can change the world And we leave this world and we all meet One man can change the world And we leave this world and we all meet One man I'm fine right where I am I am fine right where I am by Keith IMC here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, Marcus Lopez, executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, speaks with Richard Stoller Schulk, who's professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University on the recent violence perpetrated by the Mexican state government against the indigenous peoples in the communities of Chiapas and Jalisco. Recent state violence in the early part of June of 2021 has led to escalated tensions between the Mexican paramilitaries and indigenous peoples. And now the interview. We're speaking with Richard Stellar Scholl, a professor of political science from Eastern Michigan University, a frequent visitor to the American Indian Airways. Hello, Richard. How are you doing? Hi, Marcus. Great to be with you. Now, we want to talk about information I got from the Chapel Support Committee in the situation against the repressive repression of bad governments about the areas of Chapas and Jalisco and support to the Moctumaxal Community Teacher School in Chapas and to the Tepehuangno and Waxalrica peoples in Jalisco. I know I'm butchering the names, but uh, if you could put more uh, accurate pronunciation about those areas, talk about it where where the to, the liberation of 17 students and two displaced indigenous people prohibited political activism in June 5th. And at the same time in June 4th, the students and teachers initiated a sit-in to demand student liberation. And later on about the repression and bad governments and support to give support to these people. And this is from uh, the report about the Moctumaxal Rural Teachers College. Could you please talk about a little bit of the background of that, Richard? Thank you. Sure. Yes, these are two situations affecting indigenous people in different regions of the country just in recent weeks. And really both of them are kind of the tip of the iceberg. They're emblematic of the repression and discrimination that indigenous people have uh, faced historically. Um, so I'll start with the Maktumaktsa uh, Rural Teachers College or normal school in the state of Chiapas in southeast Mexico. Um, the rural normal schools uh, have a long tradition in Mexico, dating back to the time of the Mexican Revolution, when uh, the revolution was uh, supposedly going to open space for poor and indigenous and remote marginalized communities 
to have more economic and social opportunities. So the idea was to have teacher training schools in remote communities in the rural areas so that youngsters, young people from those communities, and many of them were indigenous people, could study, get grants to study. There were residential boarding schools and learn to become school teachers. So then increase the literacy and education uh, in those remote communities. So it's a great idea. Um, and, you know, uh, on that note, it is for people to understand North America, it's like sure. a colleges or trade tech combined into one, would you say? Yeah, something like that. Uh, teacher schools. Yeah. Teacher training uh, programs, except specifically designed for uh, rural poor communities, uh, many of which were indigenous communities and many of the teacher trainees uh, who otherwise would not be able to study there, but because of the grants and this opportunity, uh, were able to do that um, and to kind of spread educational possibilities and possibilities for advancement um, in those communities. So this was an idea, again, coming out of the revolution and uh, the schools proliferated in the 1920s and 30s, dozens of them formed around different parts of Mexico. But as the so-called revolutionary government became more sort of institutionalized and less revolutionary under the grip of the long ruling institutional revolutionary party, the government began to realize that having poor indigenous uh, young people learn to read and write and become critical thinkers uh, could be a sort of danger to their entrenched power structure. And so ever since the battle has been on where successive governments have tried to uh, close down, defund, starve for resources and repress those schools. And at the same time, the young teacher trainees were becoming more and more radicalized. So that's the background for this particular uh, conflict. It's not the first or the last in these uh, rural teachers' colleges. And, and I, I see here in this article, it talks about May 18th, the bad government yes. of 91 students, including 74 women and students. So please talk about that. Sure. So what happened on May 18th is that this group of um, students from the teachers college from the normal school, um, uh, when their demands were not being heard and their demands were really pushing back against the neoliberal corporate agenda, the government uh, as part of the way of kind of supposedly modernizing and developing these schools. But, you know, uh, if you read between the lines, that means getting rid of poor and indigenous people uh, from the schools. The government was going to replace the entrance exams with an exam that could only be taken online. Uh, and of course, the computer connections are terrible in many communities and people don't have tablets or computers in these communities to be able to access them. And the government wasn't even publicizing when the entry exams were announced. And so the teacher trainees and who were in the school saw through this and they protested and the government ignored them. So they took direct action. They took over some of the toll booths on the highway between San Cristobal de las Casas and the state capital of Tuxtla Gutierrez in, in the state of Chiapas in protest. And so that's when the government forces swooped in and arrested 74 women and uh, 17 men who were um, students from the school and charged them with rioting, gang membership, property destruction, robbery, robbery violence, a, a bunch of uh, wildly exaggerated charges for what was a peaceful protest. Um, and then it got even worse after that because uh, many of the women who were protesting 
um, were objects of sexual violence at the hands of the police while they were in police custody. So the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights have denounced these violations and demanded an investigation. Um, so um, another interesting example that some of your listeners may remember of the rural teachers colleges and protests was Ayotzinapa in the state of Guerrero, where in 2016, uh, there was also a protest. And in that case, the government forces were collaborating with the drug cartels, the criminal organizations, and they disappeared 43 of those students. Again, mostly poor rural indigenous uh, students in teacher training. Um, and, uh, you know, there's never been uh, an adequate investigation of that case. So it's part of a long uh, history. So the women have since been um, released. The cases are, are pending, but it was a conditional release. Uh, and the condition is that they have to report in every two weeks. They're not allowed to participate in any social protest while they are on this sort of um, conditional release pending their trials on these, um, you know, wildly exaggerated charges. Uh, so that's one situation, but again, sort of emblematic of this long history of trying to prevent the advance, educational and social advance of indigenous people. Thank you, Richard, for that summation. Um, we know that the uh, within the arrest, the spoils of war, as they say, of sexual harassment by the undressing the women and groping them and the students accused of wanting the exams and they were going to uh, practice to be in person and not by the in, by the internet. And it also talks about how the government authorities and Chapa's educational authorities show once again that they don't have the slightest idea, and you mentioned this, but on the geography and political and social situation in the state, what does that mean to you? Well, uh, again, it, this is sort of the tip of the iceberg, or it sort of reveals the deeper underlying structural oppression and racism and marginalization um, to which indigenous people are subject. Um, so, for example, uh, people who don't have easy access to computers, internet, etc., um, are you know, not on a level playing field if that's the only way you can take these entry exams that's sort of the... Um, the possible route out of poverty and exclusion and lack of education. Something similar happened when Mari Chui, the indigenous candidate um, in the 2018 presidential election, was trying to collect signatures to get her name on the ballot, mostly to make a point to have indigenous people and their demands and concerns be more visible. And the government arranged a very complicated way to uh, register signatures that again required internet connections, tablets, all the things that were very difficult for many indigenous people to access. And so not surprisingly, that was a way in that case of politically excluding indigenous people from uh, representation. So in this case, it's kind of social and economic exclusion, but it's it's the same historic pattern that we see. You might say the historic pattern, a continual marginalization, ignoring and or recognize indigenous populations throughout Mexico. And that's what you're referring to, right? Yes, absolutely. Now, Richard, going a little different from to the state, you know, from Chiapas to Jalisco, Mexico, you know, we look at the, um, where the National Indigenous Congress, Indigenous Government Council and the EZLN salute the national international campaign for justice and ter territory and 
as a squalled lawn in Villa Guerrero municipality, the state of Jalisco. Talk about the what the what the article talks about the brothers and sisters of autonomous indigenous community in Waxalrica and Tepawana resisting their lives and about Fabio Flores Sanchez or uh, La Polla. Talk about that for us and what's the background of that, please. And you're listening to Richard Stuller-Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's providing an update on the recent Mexican state government paramilitaries violence perpetrated against indigenous peoples throughout the communities of Chiapas and Jalisco. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. And now back to the interview. Sure. Uh, this is another situation in the western Mexican state of Jalisco in a small indigenous community uh, called San Lorenzo de Azqueltan. And that community uh, is populated by Tepewano and Huixarica indigenous people. Uh, the Huixarica people are also sometimes known as Huicholes. So those communities have a long-standing ancestral claim on some communal lands. Um, and in fact, they actually have a grant of communal um, uh, management and ownership of those lands from the Spanish crown dating back to the 1700s. But of course, uh, governments are always, um, you know, just dismissing any kind of legal, moral, ancestral, international law, any claims of indigenous people to their lands um, and uh, finding uh, mechanisms to forcibly displaced in the interest again of so-called progress development etc so the you know the, uh, the hegemonic dominant government perspective is that well indigenous people uh, you know are not modern and they just need to be sort of absorbed or get out of the way uh, for uh, progress um, so the indigenous people in that area uh, appealing to their ancestral rights have set up structures of self-governance and the national indigenous Congress um, of course is supportive of all of the struggles of indigenous people throughout Mexico uh, to exercise their right to self-governance according to their um, traditions. So the assembly uh, of indigenous people of self-governance in this community of Azqueltan um, was upholding the uh, ancestral rights of the uh, indigenous people and pushing back against outsiders who come in grab land, put up fences to keep out the indigenous people whose land it was originally, etc. And the government, in collaboration with local power brokers and bosses, uh, outsiders from the not from the indigenous community, has launched violent attacks, committed acts of violence against the traditional indigenous authorities in the community. So things have been escalating uh, with this harassment of traditional and autonomous government uh, you, yes. we talked about that and we want to make it clear to our audience that we're talking about privatizing the land absolutely coercion and certain violent caciques are trying to manipulate and privatize the land so i just want to make clear that people are taught in in these private these collective lands you might say are from way back during the mexican constitutional days you know, right and obviously before the european invasion the indigenous people were also communally living in harmony yeah, yeah so i just want to make that clear yes. so so here we go privatizing land and the government so continue please 
Yeah, so the government is in favor of this neoliberal pro-market agenda of uh, stealing what is collective and turning it over to private market actors. So one of these local bosses who was trying to be part of the land grab was this Fabio Flores Sanchez, who you mentioned, whose nickname is La Polla, and he was sort of one of the ringleaders in the stealing of communal land um, and has according to the indigenous communities there, been organizing the violence attacks against the indigenous authorities. Um, so both the National Indigenous Congress, the CNI, and the Zapatistas have denounced uh, these aggressions as they've also denounced um, the mistreatment of the rural normal school teachers in Magdamaxa and Chiapas. So there is a kind of link. And one of the ironies here, and it sort of highlights the theme uh, of pushing back against privatization and the, the forces of global capital is that AMLO, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, had right around the same time, he had just made a formal apology to Mayan people in the Yucatan Peninsula uh, for the kind of uh, mistreatment of indigenous people uh, dating back before the Mexican Revolution under the regime of the dictator Porfirio Diaz. So on the one hand, he's claiming to apologize for past uh, sins against indigenous people. And by the way, the, the National Indigenous Congress rejected that uh, false apology, just as they also reject the mega project. So on the one hand, he's apologizing. But on the other hand, he, uh, one of his big mega projects of opening up to private capital uh, is the so-called Mayan train. Uh, without consulting Mayan communities, he wants to allow private investors to come in and run a train between the Mayan sites, um, the, um, uh, the ruins and uh, sacred sites and historic sites of Mayan people in Chiapas all the way up to the Yucatan uh, Peninsula. And even though under international law, such projects cannot take place without free, prior, and informed consent of the indigenous communities. That's the phrase under international law. Um, uh, Lopez Obrador has just gone ahead and done sham consultations with co-opted and bought off groups of indigenous people. So pitting people against each other, divide and conquer, stealing land. Uh, so it's a long tradition going back. Uh, so we see a kind of uh, chain going back to before the Mexican Revolution, going back to the Spanish invasion, and going back even before that. Um, so the same, in the same breath, he's apologizing to the Mayan people at the same time that he's allowing the theft and privatization of indigenous lands and turning a blind eye to what's happening in the state of Jalisco, where that's taking place right now. So it seems like a lot of dynamics there in Mexico, you know, that uh, this is only two little if you will, hotspots, just like in North America, the pipelines yes. and the different struggles with the missing and murdered indigenous women and LBGT uh, communities mm -hmm. and many other issues of land, housing, employment, uh, you know, and federal government funding or not funding, the funding of the local authorities that create repression in this country and in the United States and North America. What does this all mean for us here in North America, do you think, from, you know, from our vantage point? We think of it as far off lands or in Mexico or in Chiapas or this area called, you know, um, these indigenous names and cities and communities and villages. And uh, yes. what do you want their listeners to take, take from this all? 
I think an important underlying lesson is that we're all part of the same struggle. There's no such thing as a faraway land or a faraway struggle in the era of globalization. Uh, it's all connected, the same kinds of forces that are promoting uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline are the same forces of global capital that are displacing people in various parts of Mexico as well. Um, so if capital can go global and um, you know, conspire uh, to undermine people's rights, then people can go global, connect their struggles, and try to uh, stand up for the rights of, of people. So I think that that's the most important uh, takeaway here. Um, so the struggles of everyone in Adyayala, in Tur Turtle Island, in the um, in these geographically connected lands are all um, one struggle and one historic struggle. There were different phases and different different dynamics of colonial dispossession, but um, we're seeing kind of the the ongoing consequences and the continuation of this throughout the Americas. Now, Richard, we know that the EZLN and the National Indigenous Congress, Indigenous Government Council, um, saluting a national, international campaign for justice and territory in the areas of uh, Via Guerrero is not the first time this happened, but at the same time, they're asking for a individual to be judged and punished for the crimes that are committed, and such as threats and arm attacks and attempted murder and disposition of lands. How's that? How's that manifest? What do you What are you hearing? Well, the, um, the National Indigenous Congress, which is a, uh, a kind of mechanism for um, dialogue and solidarity and coordination among all the 60 plus indigenous groups throughout Mexico, uh, was really inspired in its creation by the Zapatista uprising, which went public in 1994, and then the National Indigenous Congress was formed two years later. Um, and so it's an example of what we were just talking about, about the importance of connecting struggles uh, across geographic distances. Um, so it's, it's very important that the Zapatistas uh, are not just about the struggles of uh, Mayan communities in the state of Chiapas, but really about interconnected struggles against neoliberal capitalism, against dispossession, against discrimination, and uh, you know, in solidarity with other indigenous peoples throughout Mexico and, and elsewhere. So this teaming up of the CNI, the National Indigenous Congress, and the Zapatistas is really historic and powerful. And in fact, um, well, the, the running of the, the, the candidate spokesperson, um, Mari Chui, was one example of a product of this kind of uh, collaboration to build bridges and raise awareness throughout the country. And the CNI and the Zapatistas have just launched another collaborative initiative where um, they have set sail to Spain, sort of reversing um, uh, Columbus's uh, uh, infamous uh, journey and the Zapatistas and the CNI have reassured Spain that they don't worry, we don't intend to do <laughs> to you what you did to us. Um, we are coming um, in solidarity with other struggles and to you know kind of raise awareness and and build bridges and and make connections. But and so you know we don't we don't want anything they say. We're not asking for an apology or for anything else because uh, um, you know that's not what it's about. We want you to. Um, kind of, you know, acknowledge these historic 
uh, injustices and work together for a more just world that everyone can be uh, a part of. Um, so they are, they have set sail. And uh, last I heard, they had stopped in Cuba on the way and they will, this small delegation will eventually be arriving in Spain and um, branching out across Europe. So the point is that um, the struggle is not specific to one community or even one country, but it really is a struggle against injustice everywhere. Um, and, you know, that injustice everywhere is part of this phenomenon of global capitalism that is wreaking havoc in everyone's lives. The moment of silence is over. And that was Marcus Lopez interviewing Richard Stoller Schult, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He was providing an update on the recent Mexican state paramilitary violence perpetrated against indigenous peoples in the communities of Chiapas and Jalisco in Mexico. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Mark Moses Alvarado of One Community Bridge Project based out of Santa Barbara, California, and Richard Stoller Schultz. Professor of Political Science at Eastern Michigan University. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Keese IMC, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds. Nor the hands that hold the chains In a rhythm of resistance We still fight for our lives In this war that never ended We've outdrawn your lives Let our actions speak We need your Silence is over.